0: Hello all, uh, it's good to see all of you here. We'll be continuing today our sermon series on Ephesians. So if you'd kindly open up to page 1164, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. You will find, a, uh, you'll find an outline in the middle of your bulletin if that's helpful. Let's pray and get started. Heavenly Father, who is worthy to preach your word Father, as unworthy as I am, I pray for your grace, that you will allow me to preach your word faithfully. Father, who is worthy to receive your word? Father, as unworthy as we are, we pray for your grace, that you will enable us to receive your word, that you will help us to respond rightly to it. And we pray, Father, that we will open up our ears and our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you wondered how the Old Testament applies to you? Do you come under the law? Do you need to fulfill the law to be saved? And this is some of the things that we're going to look today in our passage. Now, come with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Here, we see Paul starting with therefore. So we know that this means that this part of the passage is a response to what he has spoken about earlier. So if you remember last week's sermon, Paul shows us how we were once sinners, but God has saved us. He has adopted us, he has seated us with Christ up in the heavenly places. And so this whole line of argument that Paul is making in this passage is going to be about what does these things mean to you who are saved by God. In our passage here, we see that Paul speaks to the Gentile Christians. We know this because he addresses them as you Gentiles. And he tells them to remember two things. Firstly, that they were once called the uncircumcision by the Jewish people. Now, this is not a good term, and it shows us that the Gentiles were not acceptable to the Jews. This term, the circumcised, is a reference to how the Jews were a circumcised people because they follow the law, they obey the commandments to circumcise, and because of that, they believe that they are close to God. They snip-snip, so they think they are clean. The Gentiles, who are called the uncircumcision, are regarded as unclean because they don't snip-snip. They are rejected. They are considered unclean because of a piece of flesh. Because of this, the Gentiles are considered by the Jews far off from the God, and they are as if they are filthy stray dogs. And that's the Jewish mindset that only Jews are saved by God, and Gentiles have no hope for them. But Paul then tells the Gentiles, this was what they once were. It was true once by the reckoning of Jewish law, but no longer now. The second thing Paul asks them to remember is found in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here, Paul reminds them that the Gentiles were never naturally part of God's Israel. The Jewish people, they are the ones to actually have hope. They had hope in God's promises to them. They are the ones that God made a covenant with. The Christ that they are waiting for comes from their people. The Gentiles, by contrast, have nothing to look forward to. Only the outer darkness and the gnashing of teeth separated from God. However, this wasn't God's plan. Think of the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and he who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see that God will bless the Jews, but we also see that God is going to use this to bring a blessing to all the nations. Ultimately, we see that blessing coming true to the Jews in the person of Christ. In Christ, God brings out this blessing to the Jews who put their trust in God, who follows the Christ. And as promised, they find rest in Him through the salvation that God brings. And they're glorified with Christ in heaven. In Christ, God works out the very same blessing even to the Gentiles. This is what Ephesians 1 pointed out for us. God is reconciling all things, things in heaven and on earth in Christ. And this is what Paul picks up in verse 13 as he comes to show what God did. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Through the death of Jesus Christ, God reaches out to these unclean Gentiles who are far off. God brings them near and he washes away their sins and he imputes them with the righteousness of Jesus. And suddenly, there are Gentiles who are made holy and part of God's people. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility. We see that Christ himself becomes their peace through what he has done. In fact, what Christ did was greater than the shadow of the Old Testament law. Have a look again at verse 11. The circumcised ones, they judge and reject the uncircumcised ones. And their confidence is only in something that's made in flesh. In Christ, we see that through his own flesh, his body, he brings about the true circumcision, the spirit working in the heart. So we see then there's a contrast being set up. That's the cultural Jewish idea of being God's people, which is based merely on the works of flesh, the circumcision by human hands as opposed to the true work that Christ does, where he makes people into God's people through the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It is true this, that Christ himself becomes our peace. This means that those who are united in the one body of Christ can now put aside their enmity, their differences. You can now have peace with each other as you accept the others as brothers and sisters. We also see that Paul shows us that the enmity that Jesus has resolved is not just between the Jews and Gentiles. Come with me to verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. While there is enmity between the Jews and the Gentile, there is a greater enmity between all of humankind and the holy God Himself. And this enmity, Jesus reconciled in his body through the cross by shedding his blood which satisfied the necessary wrath of God on sin. Holy God is appeased by the sacrifice that Jesus has offered. And we have peace. And so, this also helps us to understand verse 15 a bit better. Some of you might wonder, why verse 15 talks about abolishing the law of the commandments? Does that mean that now we can ignore what the Old Testament commandments and law says? From Ephesians itself, we can see that that's not what he's trying to say because Paul himself mentions one of the commandments in chapter 6 of Ephesians. He says, honor your father and your mother. So it can't be that God's laws are no longer relevant. What this means, however, is that we are no longer beholden to the law for our salvation. But now we seek to obey the spirit of the law out of love. Now imagine a child. He is taught by his parents to be back by 10 p.m. at night. That is his curfew. The parents set this curfew as if it's a law and punishes the child when he breaks it. However, when the child grows up into a man, He no longer has that same curfew as a law because he is now an adult. The law no longer applies to him. However, if we understand that the spirit of the law behind the curfew is so that the child learns to be wise in making choices, to teach him to be disciplined, to teach him wisdom, to teach him that he should be planning so he can make sure he has enough rest, so he can function well the next day. He can go to school. He can do his parts, And then we see that what's being taught here is not just the mere law. It's something deeper. And then we see that while the letter of the law is not enforced, the spirit of the law is still enforced for the boy even after he has grown up. See, when he grows up, the right things for him to decide then is Is make good decisions, wise decisions. Don't stay up late to party all night. Make sure I go back earlier to get enough rest because tomorrow is going to be a busy day. See, he's no longer under the law of the curfew. But because that law has trained him to have wisdom to be able to know what is good and right for him to know, he knows that the right thing to do which pleases his parents is to keep the spirit of the law, even though he's no longer under the law. And so, friends, if we are children of God, then in the same way, we still look to the law in the Old Testament. But we do so to understand how we should be behaving, what God determines to be good, rather than seek to come under the law and hold fast to things like Sabbath day observances, eating of meat, and so on. But this means that we no longer have to obey the ceremonial aspects of the law. For example, eating unclean pork. Right? So instead of using it as a law, we understand that there's a spirit behind that law. And the idea is to teach you to fear defilement to fear being defiled by things and Jesus teaches us it's not what goes inside that defiles you it is the sinful and evil thoughts that come out of your heart that defiles you so it is okay to eat pork but it was never okay to defile yourself with sinful desires and thoughts now the next verse is a little bit difficult Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, it can be talking about Jesus preaching the good news after his resurrection to both Jews and Gentiles for 40 days before he is ascended. But I think it is more probable that this text is talking about something bigger than that period of time. I think it talks about how through the Spirit, Jesus brings his words of the gospel, of the reconciliation with God through his sacrifice. And it is through the Spirit that we see Jesus' word at work. So this verse captures how Jesus is at work in our lives as we hear his voice through the Scriptures. His voice faithfully preached which until today still convicts Jews and Gentiles to come near to God. Jesus works in us, even today through the Spirit, to bring us to God. And that Spirit then allows us to be able to call him Abba, Father. So, we've had a long exposition by Paul, but what does it mean to his listeners? Paul unpacks that, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The reason the Gentiles are told to remember who they were and what Jesus has done for them through his sacrifice, through his blood, is so that these people will realize who they are now. They are redeemed by his blood. They are made holy. They are no longer the uncircumcision that's far away from God. They are no longer strangers and aliens. Instead, they are fellow citizens with the Jewish Christians. Now that Jesus has prepared room in his father's house for his followers, he calls them Jews and Gentile. Come as members of the household of God. Jesus has united us all and given us the same status as children of God. The Gentile Christians are called to remember that. And this should change how they think of themselves, of their approach to unity, of their approach to their identity as followers of Christ. But what does being part of God's household mean? Verse 20 tells us that the household of God is, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And here, we see Paul using a metaphor of a building to refer to the believing Gentiles and Jews that Jesus has gathered. This gathered people, who are pictured as a whole structure, represents the assembly of God's people. This is God's church. Not the building, but the people. All of them. All of you. And everyone is reminded through this metaphor here of just what they are all a part of. This church of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It is built on the word of the apostles who first preached the gospel. It is built up in the words of the prophets of the Old Testament who gave us the Old Testament scriptures. It is built up in the words of the New Testament prophets who through the working of the Spirit affirms the word of the apostles and thus led to the building up of the early church. You see, friends... It is on the basis of the scriptures which records these words that we find our foundation. Not tradition, not rumors, not fancy theories, scripture. And when we examine scripture carefully, we will find at the very heart of scripture, the cornerstone. The cornerstone is a foundational stone through which all other stones are placed in alignment to when you're constructing a building. That stone then sets the shape and form of the building because every stone will be aligned to it. And if that stone is crooked, then you will have a crooked building. But if that stone is straight, then you will have a straight building. And here we are told that this cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ himself. He is the measure by which the church follows and grows into. He is the standard. Is therefore no accident that all scripture points to Christ because he is the cornerstone. The church, which is the household of God, is then described by Paul as forming a holy temple in the Lord. Now, a temple isn't just a fancy ceremonial building. And as we see in the Old Testament, it is actually a holy place that God himself dwells in. And this is what God's house ultimately is, if you understand the metaphor. The temple in which God himself dwells in. So we have seen how God's people is God's household. And these people are also God's temple in whom he dwells. It's not a building like this cathedral. It's a people made holy, united in Christ. God's church has always been the gathering of God's people. As people hear the gospel and come to Christ, that is how God builds up the temple, person by person, not brick by brick. And he builds up, until everyone that he has predestined to belong to Christ, until everyone finally comes into this household, this temple. Paul needs to get Gentile Christians to understand this so that they are able to understand who they are, what they are meant to be. They are meant to remember what great mercy God has worked for them in Christ. And it is so that they will respond rightly, that they will appreciate what they have. And then to press the point, Paul comes to verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This dwelling of God that's being built isn't merely in the corporate body of the church. As believers are united to Christ in one body, they are also individually being built up to be a dwelling place for God. You see, the Holy Spirit dwells within the believer, which means God himself dwells in them. So if you, sitting here today, are united with Christ through your faith in him, then friends, God dwells in you. So we see in this passage then, Paul writing to challenge the Christians in Ephesus, both Jews and Gentiles, to come together as God people. But what does it mean to us today? I don't know about you. I don't know many Jews. So what would be the point of this passage to me? What would it mean to you? Firstly, just like the Ephesians, we should remember what we were before God saved us. And that would help us to remember that there is absolutely no place in your life to be proud of yourself in regards to your salvation. God owed you nothing, He promised you nothing. He did not make a covenant with you, He did not raise up a king from you. And yet, He still saves you by His love and grace even though you are far away from him, even though you don't deserve it. So when we come to prayers like the prayers of humble excess, remember this and it will help you to appreciate why you pray in that way. Secondly, we have the assurance that Jesus has abolished the laws. So we are no longer seeking to be right with God through obedience to the law, we have peace through Christ. What does that mean? That means it is by us trusting in the works of Christ, relying on him alone to be the payment for our sins, that we can come to salvation. So why do we do good things? You need to ask yourself that. Is it because you're seeking to curry favor with God? Because you feel Christ didn't do enough, I need to top up what he has done? Or is it because you remember who you were and how God has rescued you? And because of that, do good works to please him. Christians do good works, but we do it out of the gratitude we have to God, never as payment towards our salvation. Never as a means to earn our salvation. We stand by the righteousness of Christ alone or we fall because our righteousness are tattered rags. Thirdly, remember, we have peace with God through Christ. We can call God Hapa, Father. How often do we live our lives in this assurance? that the God of all creation, her power over life and death and everything, that this God is my father, that he is watching me, that his will will come forth, and nothing can happen to me that he does not desire to happen. Does your life look like that? Do our choices and actions show us that we trust and rely on this God, Or is it driven by fear of the world, fear of the unknown, fear of uncontrollable circumstances? Another point is we should be people knowing that we have relationship with God, have assurance that even when we fail to live rightly, we can come before God on bended knees Come to him in prayer, even when we have sinned terribly. And remember that he is our father, and Christ has died to wash us clean. Fourthly, remember our true identity. We are not defined by titles, our jobs, our club memberships, our status in life. The only identification that matters is that we are citizens and members of God's household. And that means we have to stand united with other Christians who believe in the gospel. Regardless of the style of worship, what denomination they are from, whether they wear headscarves or wear fancy robes, we are his church. And that defines who we are. Not the world. Live as Christians, not as people of the world. And finally, remember each of you who believes in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. God himself dwells in you. And you are a temple of the Lord. And so, when you choose to sin, lusting after someone, unethical business practices, valuing money over God, valuing your own pleasures and your own time over God, When you sin in so many ways, you are doing this against the very nature of who you are. If you are a temple of God, then being holy is not optional. You are holy by nature. Therefore, there is a need for us to be active in learning to fight sins. Actively rejecting sins. You may not be perfect, but don't use that as an excuse to keep on hiding your sins. Do not compartmentalize your sins and tell God, you know, God, this sin, I'll give it to you, but you know, this one I like, i want to keep. Can't do that. Everything must go. The only desire you should have is to model Christ, the cornerstone. Remember, this isn't to qualify you to be God's temple. Rather, you should seek to do this because you are God's temple. Remember who you were. Remember what God did for you and understand who you are now. These three things will help you keep Christ central in your life and will help you to live your life the way God intends you. To live your life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that through Christ and the blood that He spilled on that cross, you have washed us, you have brought us near to you, you have made us members of your household. And Father, we ask you today for your mercy. For all the times when we have not appreciated what that means and we choose to do things our own way. Father, we are now a temple for your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Lord, that you change our lives, that you convict us so that we will change and live a life that glorifies you. That we will be more pleasing to you as your temple And Father, we give you thanks that our salvation is not in our hands, but through the work that Christ has already completed. For it was in our hands, we would have lost it already. So we ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please stand and we will sing the nunc dimittis to be found on page 10.